Christianity is the most popular and widespread religion in the world, and it is no less prevalent here, having been the official state religion since the end of the Roman era. And yet, Christianity in Britain has a long, complicated, and controversial history. And so, in this episode of the Present History Podcast, we will be examining this history from the Roman era until now. So, let's delve in to a history of being Christian and British. Before the Romans invaded in 43 AD, the Celtic people of Britannia followed a rather expansive religion, worshipping over 200 different deities, feeling a deep connection to nature, and sacrificing both material possessions and, at points, humans. The Druid priests, according to Roman sources, practised human sacrifice on a monumental scale with Julius Caesar writing that some employed the method of wicker men, or having figures of vast size, the limbs of which formed of osiers, they fill with living men, which, being set on fire, the men perish enveloped in the flames. Burning, drowning, hanging and decapitation were their preferred methods of sacrifice. When the Romans arrived, they were shocked and abhorred by the practice of human sacrifice, and began to suppress and destroy the Druid leaders. They did little, however, to actively try and change the national religion. As had been their policy throughout the empire, the invading forces would not impose a new religion on the people, but would allow them to continue worshipping their own gods, and would, in some cases, even adopt these gods for themselves. As a polytheistic people themselves, the Romans were content to let the Britons worship their gods, if only they would temper their more extreme practices. As Christianity began to spread across the empire in the years following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were constantly repressed and at points persecuted. It wasn't until the 2nd century AD that we find any real evidence of there being Christians in Britain. There may have been Christians around before then, but as a truly metropolitan outpost of the empire, we might never know for sure when Christianity began in Britain or who brought it over. By the end of the Romano-British era, most, if not all, of the population were Christian. They were building early churches, settlements and structures, which were to be raided and destroyed by the new invasions of Saxons. The Saxons began to try and replace British Christianity with a kind of Germanic polytheism. Despite this, Christianity thrived in Wales and successfully spread to Ireland, later reaching Scotland in the 5th and 6th centuries. Disconnected from the church in Rome, the Britons forged a distinctively Celtic church. As the tradition goes, the new pope of the Roman church, Gregory, saw a number of Anglo-Saxon boys on sale at a slave market, and remarked, these are not angles, but angels, and became set on converting the Saxon Britons. In 596, he sent a party, led by St Augustine, to Britain, where they landed in Kent and began to convert the population. Kent was the first to fall, with Essex following quickly after. 
In 627, the king of Northumbria and all his nobles were baptised. But when he was killed in battle, his kingdom reverted back to paganism. They were later reconverted by priests from Scotland. By the end of the 7th century, all of England was at least nominally Christian. But this was soon to be tested by the new invasions of Vikings from the continent. With them, they brought a similar kind of polytheism as the Angles. When Alfred defeated them in the decisive Battle of Eddington, they divided England in two, and the Vikings agreed to convert to Christianity. Once they had become Christian, there was little to separate them and the Saxons. But over time, Alfred's descendants would conquer the Danish lands and create a single, united kingdom. During the late 10th century, Britain underwent a kind of religious revival, with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dunstan, building a number of monasteries and churches. After the Norman invasion and conquest in 1066, the power of the church really came to the fore. The church owned land, held enormous power, and were crucial in aiding the position of the king, and in shaping the legal and religious life of the country. The king, at this time, was not the head of the church, but was heavily involved in the choosing of church leaders, sometimes even opposing the pope himself. In 1070, as William was being coronated, Pope Alexander II sent an ambassador to begin some rather monumental changes in church structure. Unhappy with having a man named Stigand as Archbishop of Canterbury, the Pope and the new King William deposed him, replacing him with a man named Lanfranc, who began to overhaul the structure of the church. He made sure that the local priests were kept under the control of the central church bishops and archbishops, bringing into play a structure in which a bishop controlled an area called a diocese, each diocese had an archdeacon to help the bishop manage the churches, and each diocese was divided into smaller deaneries that were overseen by a dean, who made sure canon law and right conduct was upheld. Over the next few years, monasteries and churches grew, with the power of the church ever increasing. It wasn't long before the true power of the church was realised, with the beginning of the Crusades in 1095. As the new Islamic caliphate dominated the Middle East and overthrew Jerusalem, the very heart of Christianity was seen to be attacked. The Pope called on all Christian nations to rally alongside one another and reclaim the Holy Land. Britain's contribution to the First Crusade was limited, with a war between the new King William II and his brother Robert of Normandy occupying them more than the quest for the Holy Land. But when the Second Crusade came about in 1147, King Stephen dispatched crusaders from Dartmouth. Despite not making it to the Holy Land, having to stop in Portugal, the English soldiers did aid King Alfonso I in reclaiming Lisbon from the Muslim invaders. Over the next few years, the subsequent kings of England sent thousands of soldiers to try and recapture the Holy Land. And yet, it wasn't until the reign of King Richard II that the Christian church in Britain faced any real threat to its orthodoxy. John Wycliffe, a theologian, philosopher and seminary professor at the University of Oxford, began in the mid-1300s 
to question the power, status and wealth of the church and its clergy. In what would become known derogatorily as Lollardy, the followers of Wycliffe began to debate the veneration of saints, the sacraments, transubstantiation and monasticism, going as far as to question the very existence of the papacy. Wycliffe and his followers even translated the Bible into the common vernacular, an act seen as rebellion against the church. For so long, the only people who could read, interpret and exposit scripture were the church leaders and priests. Now, the common, literate man could read the word of God for himself. Of course, this was a monumental concern for the church. Not only was he questioning the power and authority of the church and the pope, but was also investigating and debating the orthodoxy of the church's theology. While the church didn't get the chance to bring any recompense against him while he lived, when he died of natural causes, they condemned him posthumously, exhumed his body, burnt him, and tossed his ashes into the River Swift. What Wycliffe did, however, was start asking questions that would come to the fore during the years of the English Reformation. When Henry VIII ascended to the throne, he married his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, and was desperate for a male heir. When the Reformation was tearing apart the church on the continent, Henry actively condemned it, garnering him the title Defender of the Faith. Very quickly, however, he changed his tune. As Catherine was only able to provide Henry with a daughter, he sought a way out of the marriage. When the Pope refused to allow a divorce, Henry summoned the very same Reformation Parliament he had once condemned to enact the same statutes against the English Church, severing all ties with the Roman Church and making Henry the head of the Church, allowing him the divorce he was so desperate for. A law was passed at the same time, meaning that it was an act of treason to oppose these reforms, or to continue in your Catholicism. This tore the English church apart, and set in motion the English Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries. The issue was, however, that the doctrine of the English Reformation remained practically unchanged. Other than the king now being the head of the church, there was little to no real difference between them and the Roman church they had just split from. Lutherism remained condemned, and many reformers were still martyred. Men like John Frith, Robert Barnes, and William Tyndale, a man whose work had been one of the inspirations for Henry's break with Rome, and whose translation of the Bible actually formed the basis of Henry's own authorised Great Bible. This was turmoil. And for the next 150 years, doctrine changed and varied with each successive ruler, getting increasingly violent as the years went on. With the accession of Queen Mary I, a Catholic queen, persecution of the Protestants increased, gaining her the name Bloody Mary. Her sister and successor was little better, turning the tables and persecuting the Catholics. Elizabeth's successor, James I, supported the new Protestant denomination of Anglicanism, but began to pull back on the Catholic persecution. It was the numerous attempts on his life, 
that included the infamous gunpowder plot that led him to institute harsher measures. James also oversaw the production of an authoritative English Bible, which would become one of the most widely used translations of Bible in history, the King James Bible. All the while, a new, more strict branch of Christianity was growing, the Puritans, who were set on removing all Catholic practices from the English church and were soon to become one of the most prominent denominations in Britain. As the 17th century dawned, so did the tenure of a new Archbishop of Canterbury. William Lord was deeply opposed to these Puritans, and the new king, Charles I, wholeheartedly supported this view. The Puritans thought Lord was too close to Catholicism, as he valued the decorations and ceremony in church, and feared that he would be the inadvertent beginning of a new Catholic resurgence. At this time, the church in Scotland was separate and different from the church in England. Charles sought to bring a sense of unity and conformity to all churches, thereby attempting to force Anglican observances into the Scottish church. This sparked a riot that was soon to become a national resistance against the king. Charles formed an army and marched to the border, but lacking in funds and confidence, Charles agreed to leave the Scots alone, and the First Bishop's War ended without a battle. When Charles found out, however, that the Scots had been communing with France, he again decided to launch an attack. This time, he called a Parliament meeting, and they insisted on discussing the grievances they had with the King, and showed themselves to be deeply opposed to a war with the Scots. Charles, frustrated by this, dissolved the Parliament, raised an army on his own, and went to fight the Scots. This was a disaster, and Northumbria was lost to the invading Scottish forces. Returning with his tail between his legs, Charles was forced to call a second parliament. When another revolt broke out, this time in Ireland, and Charles once again decided against discussing the issues with parliament and went about raising another army on his own, a civil war was becoming ever more possible. And at the Battle of Edge Hill in 1642, the English Civil War began. For the next seven years, Britain would be at war and the parliamentary forces would emerge victorious. Oliver Cromwell, a devout Puritan, was declared Lord Protector of Britain in 1653 and had moral and religious reforms at the heart of his policy. He was particularly opposed to Catholics and Quakers. He even went as far as to launch a campaign into Ireland to destroy the Catholics. In England, Cromwell began to bring in reforms that would mirror and enforce his Puritan values. As they believed work was one of the main ways to get into heaven, pointless employment was looked down upon. And so, Cromwell oversaw the shutting down of inns, theatres and sports. Boys caught playing football on a Sunday would be whipped as punishment. Those who swore would be fined and those who continued to swear could be thrown in prison. He banned Christmas, as it had supposedly strayed too far from its religious roots, and even went as far as to have soldiers patrolling the streets to confiscate food being cooked for Christmas celebrations. 
He changed Britain into a strict military Puritan state, and the people hated him for it. Many independent churches were formed during this time too, in opposition to the Puritan Protestantism that Cromwell was enforcing. When he died in 1658, the monarchy was restored and Charles II became king in 1660. Although Charles himself was not very religious, he oversaw a crackdown on these new independent churches, seeking to restore Anglicanism as the state denomination. They passed a series of acts called the Clarendon Code, a series of laws to persecute nonconformists, and the Corporation Act of 1661 that said all officials in towns must be members of the Church of England. All of this was set back by the accession of his successor, James II, a proud and open Catholic. He quickly appointed Catholics to powerful positions and repealed the laws that discriminated against them and non-Anglican Protestants. This changed once again the religious landscape of Britain, and yet, as is becoming a common theme, was immediately opposed when James was deposed in 1688. A Bill of Rights was brought in that forbade a Catholic from ever becoming king or queen, and no reigning monarch could marry a Catholic. The nonconformists fared a little better, being allowed their own places of worship, their own teachers and preachers, but were still banned from holding any government position or attending university. As the 18th century rolled around, all this denominational turmoil birthed a kind of religious apathy, where enthusiasm for Christianity and church attendance dwindled. And yet, the seeds of revival were there. By the mid-18th century, a fervency was beginning to be born again, with the likes of George Whitefield and John Wesley beginning their ministries. Wesley travelled around England, beginning a new movement called the Methodists. Both Whitefield and Wesley found England to be fertile ground, with the industrialisation process creating a swathe of working-class poor, and the church neglecting their plight. Hundreds experienced emotional conversions under Whitefield's fiery preaching. Wesley joined Whitefield and they served together, with Wesley quickly becoming the leader of the movement. But, finding themselves in opposition to one another on the doctrines of predestination and sanctification, they parted ways. It was Wesley's natural organisational prowess that eventually formed his followers into a new denomination. Originally, the term Methodist was a derogatory term, coined by Wesley's critics, but soon they wore the label proudly. However, the critics went one further than slander, paying bands of thugs to break up meetings, threaten Wesley's life and attack his followers. This didn't stop Wesley, and even the direct opposition of the Bishop of Bristol had little effect on his determination. He would go on to travel over 4,000 miles each year and preach over 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. Wesley, his brother Charles, Whitefield and others like them were the beginning of a Christian revival that would continue into the 19th century. The Church of England remained dominant, 
but even they were being affected by the revivalism, with a new evangelical revivalist faction growing rapidly, led by William Wilberforce and Hannah More, known as the Low Church. Their mission was to save souls through political action, like abolishing slavery, doing away with the principle of a duel and prohibiting cruelty to children and animals. During the early 19th century, the Industrial Revolution truly took hold, increasing the numbers of those living in towns from about 20% in 1801 to about 50% just 50 years later. By the early 1880s, this had extended to two-thirds of the entire population. With this, the Church of England regained some of its vigour, embarking on numerous church-building projects. Alongside this, the Catholic Emancipation Act was passed, allowing Catholics to become MPs and hold public office, something they had been unable to do since the Reformation. The early 19th century was also a time of renewed imperialism, and the Christians used it as an opportunity to evangelise, setting up many missionary trips and organisations dedicated to missionary work, like the London Missionary Society. Men like David Livingstone made their homes deep in the heart of Africa and other new colonies, preaching the gospel and converting the native inhabitants. At home, many organisations and movements were formed to combat the pressing issues of the day. For example, William and Catherine Booth founded a movement to reach the poor and fight poverty, naming it the Salvation Army in 1878. It was at this time too that Charles Spurgeon, the so-called Prince of Preachers, began his work. He would go on to sell over 56 million copies of his sermons in his own lifetime, becoming one of the most influential preachers and theologians of his day, and whose influence is still felt today. The emergence of the 20th century brought with it a rapid decline in church attendance and the membership of all denominations suffered a sharp decline. Protestant parents were losing interest in sending their children to religious schools. Many were beginning to question the truth of what the church and the Bible was saying, and the church's influence on society was beginning to wane. It was a time of crisis for the Church of England, and yet Christianity still remained one of the foremost factors shaping Britain's worldview, morality, and traditions. This was a difficult dichotomy for the church to straddle, in which they were still responsible for the large part of British society, while seemingly losing real influence and attendance. With the outbreak of war in 1914, this decline began to shift, with many seeking the safety, familiarity and hope offered by the church and its teaching. What can be, and has been argued, is that the First World War actually presented an opportunity for the church, one to bolster attendance, solidify the church's part in British society, and revitalise their influence. The First World War can be seen as a chance for the church to rectify the issues that had been irritating them for the last few years, to put away the fears of ecclesiastical civil war or disintegration. This came to be realised in rather emphatic style. 
as the Church Times on August the 14th, 1914 acknowledged, the first effect of the war has been the great rush of people to the churches. St Paul's Cathedral also had to put signs outside declaring church full, with the Bishop of London preaching to around 10,000 people in one service. From the uncertainty of the pre-war years, it seemed that the war had affected a rather impressive change in fortunes for the church. From dwindling congregation to queues out the door. But with the war also came a shift in the role for the church. The atrocities committed by the Germans in Belgium and France switched the role and focus of the church from a pacifist institution striving for peace and unity into one of the foremost recruiters for the British army. They created and perpetuated an idea of a moral war, driving their congregations towards a profound sense of duty, responsibility and honour that almost forced them into enlisting. This was also an almost all-encompassing act. It extended even to the very reaches of the clerical hierarchies, even to non-conformist ministers who, having not enlisted, still strained every nerve to assist recruiting, as the editor of the Times in 1915 assumed. And yet, as the war came to a close in 1918, the role of the church once more underwent a personality change. From being one of the foremost recruiters and drivers of pro-war rhetoric, they became places of remembrance and havens of solitude and reflection. No longer were the people coming for the uplifting and rousing speeches of wartime patriotism and fervency, but for a spirituality and sanctity that may help them make sense of their loss and the war's terrible costs. What is fascinating to note is that after the years of brutal, violent and catastrophic war, the belief in hell began to decline. After 1918, practically all preaching of hell in church services ceased. The coming of a Second World War brought about the same kind of questions in the British people. Once more, people began to contemplate the ultimate issues of life, death, good, evil, suffering, and the nature of reality. This led to the wide acceptance of radio broadcasts presented by an author and lay theologian called C.S. Lewis. According to Geoffrey Overstreet of Seattle Pacific University, there was only one voice more recognisable on the radio than Lewis's, the voice of Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister. These broadcasts began in 1941, when Britain was being bombarded by the Blitz, the constant and incessant bombing of major cities by the German Luftwaffe. He would go on to do four series of talks, from 1941 to 1944, giving 25 addresses, gaining up to 1.5 million listeners on one of his broadcasts. As Britain was officially a Christian nation, the BBC had a large religious department who worked tirelessly to bring non-controversial religious broadcasts throughout the war. As with the First World War, this typified much of the response to Christianity during the war years, as 
put simply by the old adage, there are no atheists in a foxhole. The post-war years were a time of transition in Britain. Church attendance declined, society began to become more liberal, secular and materialistic. Other religions such as Islam began to gain more of a following as immigration increased, and many people even began to reject religion as a whole, viewing it as mostly unnecessary in their daily lives. During the 1960s, many began to claim that God is dead. The church began to come into opposition with the changing views in society. The church's views on women's ordination, abortion and contraception came into direct conflict with the new cultural beliefs. However, during this time, Britain also saw the rise of a new denomination, Pentecostalism. This denomination brought a particular focus on the so-called gifts of the spirit, like speaking in tongues, healing and prophecy. These ideas and practices would spread into mainstream churches during the 1960s. During the 50s and 60s, American preacher Billy Graham held a number of crusades throughout Britain, gaining vast crowds and getting him summoned for a meeting with the Queen. Through him, Pentecostal Christianity took a real hold, becoming increasingly popular in the 1970s. Today, many of the issues the church began to come into conflict with are still prominent today, with homosexuality becoming an increasing debate within the Church of England, with the role of LGBTQ plus people in the leadership of the church, homosexual marriage and civil partnerships hotly debated. What the Catholic Church has seen in recent years is the coming to light of abuse and its cover-up. Tragically, this is also an issue that has recently been found in the Church of England. An independent investigation into child abuse within the Church of England, published in October 2020, found that 390 clergy members and other church leaders were convicted of abuse between the 1940s and 2018. The Archbishop of Canterbury, on the 7th of October 2020, came out and said that nothing must get in the way of bringing in much-needed changes to the church's systems of redress and in their support and focus on the victims and survivors of abuse. He also tweeted, saying, Apologies are vital, but they are not enough. We have to listen, we have to learn, and we have to act. The modern age has been a time of difficulty for the traditional Christian churches in Britain, with attendance dwindling and secularisation casting an increasing shade over Christian belief. And yet, the future may also look bright, with people like Rev Chris, the vicar of St Saviour's Church in London, bringing Christianity to the modern world, in the form of his 150,000-strong Instagram page and his nationally recognised 60-second sermons. What the history of the Christian church in Britain can teach us is that constant growth, improvement and evolution is fundamentally necessary. Not to acquiesce on foundational beliefs and values, but to grow and adapt to the modern world. Reaching people in new ways and dealing with societal and cultural issues that are profoundly modern in nature.
So, as always, thank you very much for listening to the Present History Podcast. I hope this has been enlightening, interesting and helpful. But please don't leave it here. There is so much more research you can do and so much deeper you can go. We'll see you next time on the next episode of the Present History Podcast. <laughs>